Hello, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, the Heart Guy, and I welcome you to another exciting and informative podcast titled The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter, bringing you interesting discussions and conversations related to the vast and important subject of heart disease, heart failure, organ donation, and everything related to that in today's ever-changing world. I'm extremely honored to have as my special guest today, an inspiring leader in our global health community, Faye Hosini. Faye was born in Iran and raised in Canada. Faye completed her Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy at the University of Toronto and spent about two and a half years working at Prince Margaret Hospital, which is a cancer institute affiliated with the University of Toronto. Faye then moved to Vancouver, British Columbia to complete her clinical pharmacy residency program, which was followed by a Doctor of Pharmacy degree program at the University of British Columbia. She then moved to Seattle, Washington in the latter part of 2010, where she introduced clinical pharmacy services in the emergency department at the University of Washington Medical Center. In August of 2012, Faye took a position in the emergency department at Harborview Medical Center, a level one trauma center, where she successfully introduced clinical pharmacy services in the emergency department at that site as well. Faye has received the Staff Recognition Award in 2012 through 2017, and again in 2019 through 2021, highlighting outstanding dedication and commitment to the service of emergency medicine at Harborview Medical Center. Most recently, Faye has formally trained at the Life Coach School, and we will explore what she has discovered as a life coach today. So Faye, welcome to The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter. Thank you so much, Dr. Sherman. That was <laughs> such a kind introduction. I'm honored to be here. Oh, sure. We're so glad to have you too. I'm glad to have you. I'm going to learn a lot myself. I know it. <laughs> so as if you've listened to any of my podcasts, you know the next question I'm going to ask you. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what was that like? Sure. So I was born in Iran, as you mentioned, and I spent the bulk of my life in Canada. But at the age of six months old, my parents actually moved to Saudi Arabia and I was there for about nine years and then we were in England for about four years and then Canada after that. So I did most of my high school and my undergrad as you mentioned in Toronto and then everything else was in BC and as the daughter of immigrant parents, I guess I should say, it was really interesting just growing up with such traditional parents, a lot of rules in the Western world. So that was yeah. a bit eye-opening for me. <laughs> yeah. So it was a challenge to be able to sort of do what you wanted to do and stay within the confine of those rules, I guess. Absolutely. And there's usually a lot more rules for the females than the men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I understand. So I understand. Mm -hmm. A lot more challenges there. Yeah. So with the, with the positive person that I know that you clearly are, what were the experiences which led you to burnout and compassion fatigue in your own life, those things that you coach people on now? So truthfully, I don't think I was, and I'm just being very honest and real here, I don't think I was always such a positive person the way I am now. What happened in my life was back in, I think it was November of 2016, my mom was diagnosed with stage 3 extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. And then for the next 16 months after that, I had a front row seat to suffering like I had never seen before, because it's obviously very mm -hmm. different when I see patients in the ER. But to have a front seat like that was really devastating. And then what ended up happening was after I lost her about 16, 17 months after her diagnosis, I think I spent the next year just really lost and floundering 
And I thought it was just grief. And that's actually what my primary care provider thought as well. But after a lot of research that I did in my own time, because I felt like the grief label was just slapped on me and that was it, I knew there was more. And so what I did was I just started to really research a lot on my own. And what I realized was that I wasn't just struggling with grief. It was grief that was superimposed with burnout, with compassion fatigue, and also elements of PTSD because Here I was working in a place in the emergency department where I would constantly see things that would just trigger my mind and take me to places that I didn't want to go. Memories of my mom's illness that were really hard for me to deal with. And I think that probably it was around the year mark that I tried to get grief counseling. I didn't really find it to be that helpful, to be honest. Maybe I just didn't find the right fit for myself. But what I did afterwards was, again, I started to, I turned to the internet and I started to really search and I came across this thing called coaching, which I didn't really know what it was. And that was when I signed up for coaching for the first time in my life. And about six months into it, I just really started to see all the shifts that were happening just in terms of my mindset and how I started to feel better. And then I thought, okay, well, this was really beneficial for me. Why don't I train in this field and try to do the same thing for other people? So that's how I ended up getting into this. Right. And so the the particular school you went to is the Life Coach School. Are there a number of different ones or is there one that you selected uh, special for any particular reason? So yes, the one I went to was the Life Coach School. I actually did my research. I was trying to figure out which program I wanted to complete because there's a lot of programs out there and, you know, they're different lengths, different pricing. And the one that I picked was actually the most comprehensive one. It's a year long in total. And it was probably the most expensive one, but I think it was the one that really felt like the right fit for me personally. And it probably is the most comprehensive, like you suggest. Yeah. So that, that's really good. That's good for your clients, for sure. So so the pandemic now has brought so many different, uh, I should say, significant life changes to most of us. How would you describe the effects of the pandemic on healthcare workers in the hospital from your vantage point there? That's a great question. I would have to say in the last probably six months or so, I've really noticed a lot more nursing staff in particular in the emergency department that I work at resign from their positions. And they're either moving to a different position in another emergency department, perhaps a smaller one, or they're doing something totally different. And some of them, if they're close enough to retirement age, they're just choosing to retire early. And who can blame them, right? But when I think about what's been happening at the hospital, the exhaustion, the cynicism, and just the unhappiness, the professional inefficacy amongst the staff is really quite palpable. It really is real what you're hearing on the news about the mass exodus in healthcare. So do you see it as burnout in the sense that it's internal or do you think it's more external factors that are lending to this or is it a combination of both of those? So if we were to actually look at the World Health Organization's definition of burnout, they specifically define burnout as an occupational phenomenon that results from chronic workplace stressors that are not well managed. And then they go on to mention that it's further characterized by three different dimensions, exhaustion, cynicism, and also professional inefficacy. Now, I personally think that a lot of people think that, you know, when you use the label burnout, it refers to the individual themselves. 
But it's really not. I believe that it's the individual as well as the institution, for example, if I'm going to be talking about a hospital. So on the one hand, people really are responsible for their own attitude and how they look at things. But at the same time, I think about it from the institution's perspective, we really do need more resources to help us out because we are getting to the breaking point. Yeah, the, the job becomes undoable when you're asked to do the job of three people all of a sudden, as it was in the face of the pandemic with the critical care and all that, where everybody had to join in and, and help in those departments that they didn't really uh, sign up for. Right. And I, I just want to mention that even before this pandemic, when it comes to healthcare, we're set up quite beautifully for burnout and compassion fatigue, because if you think about it, we have really long hours. Oftentimes, our shifts are back to back. It's not uncommon for us to have sick calls, so we don't necessarily have a full staff on board. But it's not like the volume of right. patients becomes any less. It's still high. And then when you take the ER into, into account, especially at a level one trauma center, the level of acuity can also be quite high. The waiting room is often busting at the seams. So it feels like we're constantly playing catch up, but we never really fully catch up. Do you see what I mean? So we are set up so nicely for it. And um, healthcare professionals, teachers, these are really amongst the group of professionals that have the highest risk of burnout. And we're also in this position where we're constantly serving. So we keep dipping into our own cup, using our own emotional reserves to make other people feel better. And after a while, that gets to be really exhausting because you only really have yeah. so much to give until you run out yourself. Yeah, definitely. And you're right. Certainly the healthcare fields are very demanding. And, and certainly we go into it knowing that to a degree, but COVID-19 has just magnify that to a great extent, I think, in all of the healthcare fields. Um, right. I know, you know, as a dentist, I have a lot of friends who are dentists and dental offices. They had to reconstitute the way they did their business and the way they brought in patients and all of that. They mm -hmm. had needed new equipment just to make sure that everybody was staying safe. There's a lot of stress there, too, mm -hmm. because you feel responsible to those patients. And you know that there's going to be a question. If one of them comes up positive with COVID, you know that you're going to have to answer to it. As, a, as somebody who owns a dental practice. So I think it's not only in the hospitals, but it's in private offices as well. Absolutely. I think at this point, it's actually important to mention the difference between a stressor and just the feeling of stress in our bodies, because stressors are what we always have to face in our lives, right? So for you, it might be being on, it is, I'm sure, being on the heart transplant list. Mm -hmm. For us in the ER, it would be all of a sudden a patient starting to seize out of nowhere or someone loses their pulse when they were just talking to you a minute ago. Yeah. So those are the stressors. And then we essentially what we do, obviously, in our minds is we attach a meaning to it, which then in turn gets our body full into that fight flight mode. And then we start to take action from that place. Now, in the short term, it's fine. It's great to have that kind of energy reserve, that boost to get us through just the short-term stress. But where we go wrong a lot of times, especially when it comes to burnout, is we have this tendency to still carry our stress home with us, even after we've already dealt with the stressor at work. Yeah. Yeah. It's this thing of just really not knowing how to turn it off or when to turn it off. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to turn it on and off for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. If you can't it really carry is. it home. Yeah. You hope that that drive home helps, but it doesn't always do that because you're thinking about those people, you know, in the hospital that you treated and, and what went on or co-workers, mm -hmm. of course, problems that came up, discussions you had, how you might have handled those things differently. 
So you can't just separate. It's very difficult to go home and forget about those things. Yeah, It's really difficult. When I actually think about the stress response cycle, I just, I really just try to visualize a tunnel where there's a beginning, there's a middle, and then there's an end where you see the light at the end of the tunnel. And what tends to happen for a lot of us is, so we're faced with the stressor, which, you know, can be anything. It can be like, for example, we're short six nurses or the waiting room is busting at the seams. And so that's the stressor. And then we have a thought about it, which then generates the feeling of stress in our bodies. And now we find ourselves in the middle of that tunnel where it's dark and it's really uncomfortable. Where we get into trouble is a lot of us get stuck in that middle space. And then it's stressor after after stressor. So that's how it is in the ER. So it just keeps building up. So we just start to spin around ourselves in that dark space. And we don't really know how to find our way out of that tunnel where we can actually see the light. Yeah. So there's the real, there's the real stress, which goes on at the Mm -hmm. hospital. And then there's the stress that we're creating, which is not real, but it's in our minds and, and being able to compartmentalize that, if you will, that stress so that you can function normally at home. That's so once you get home, so what questions can you ask yourself when you're feeling stressed to determine if, if you're burnt out at home or work, well, how do you know that you're, you're burnt out? So when I think of burnout, I love how there is three dimensions to it. And I should mention that those three dimensions were first identified through Dr. Christina Maslach's research. She works at UC Berkeley, and she is one of the pioneers when it comes to occupational burnout. And I separate out the three components. So the exhaustion piece, the first Mm -hmm. one, that's the stress response that I was talking about. So just asking yourself if you're feeling mentally stressed out, emotionally stressed out, physically stressed out. And also at that point, just tapping into your emotions. What is it that you're feeling? Because behind every feeling, there's always a thought there, at least one thought. So trying to just dig in to see what's really going on in your mind, because it's probably your interpretation and what you're making things mean that's really adding to your stress. If I was to look at the second dimension of occupational burnout, so the cynicism, that's really when we start to feel extremely negative and hostile about the job itself. We show up to work, but we're not really happy to be there. We don't want to be around our colleagues. We tend to be negative with patients. And, you know, a lot of people might even be upset with the administrators involved. So I think if you look at it that way, if you just split it up, it's more helpful. So the second dimension, for example... I would just really, again, tap into the emotions just to see if I'm feeling burnt out. Do I want to go back to work tomorrow? I would probably ask myself, do I dread going into work Mm, tomorrow? Do I have unexplained headaches or bowel issues that I can't quite figure out why it's happening? Do I have trouble falling asleep? Do I feel fulfilled at work? Do I find that I'm more critical with my colleagues or even with the patients? Do I find that, for example, I might lose my temper if I find out that this patient who's shown up here with COVID-like symptoms chose to not get vaccinated? So it really is just tapping into your own emotions and asking yourself a lot of questions and just really being able and willing to answer them from a very honest and emotionally raw place. You have to be honest with yourself. And then when it comes to the last dimension of occupational burnout, that's the professional inefficacy. This is where a lot of people do a lot of negative self-evaluation. Do you feel good about the job that you do? Are you happy about the career that you chose to go into? 
do you feel valued and appreciated by your administrators, the people higher up? So these are the types of questions that I'd be asking myself. Yeah, and so a lot of people feel when they get to that point that it might be time for a career change. And and that's and that's a tough one because, you know, they entered into this career, they have something that's secure, and now they have to go out and try to find something new for themselves, which isn't easy for a lot of people. So I would say not necessarily. I I think a lot of the way we think about things and the way we frame things really determine our next steps. Instead of looking at burnout as something negative, which the word, of course, carries this negative connotation with it, I would think about burnout more as really a golden opportunity to just reset, take a closer look at the various aspects of your life, look and see what it is that you need to improve on and look at it more as something positive, like an opportunity to make some small changes versus something negative. I've actually had several coaching clients in the nursing field, actually. Initially, when we started working together, they were really desperate to just switch out of the career. And just through working together, we did do a lot of reframing where instead of burnout being negative, we saw it more as an opportunity, a gift, really, and a way to grow a little bit further and figure out if you're even on the on the trajectory that you want to be on in your life or if you want to switch paths. And if you do, then what is it that you need to do to make your life happen for you instead of to you, which is what a lot of us tend to do? That that leads us to consider what some of the strategies might be to manage the burnout beyond eating well and getting a lot of sleep and exercise. Some of these strategies, I suppose, have to do with you know making lists of the things that would make us happier in life, that kind of thing. Um, I would say yes and no, only because I think happiness is really overrated, if I'm being honest. I think a lot of us, you know, have this mentality of I will be happy when and then you fill in the blank. The reality is that we can actually learn to be happy now Mm -hmm. based on how we choose to think about things. In fact, in the life coach school where I trained, one of the things that we have, it's a simple coaching tool called the model. And There is five components to it. The first one is the circumstance. The circumstance is something that is neutral, it's objective, and you can prove it to be true in the court of law. So in other words, everyone will agree with you on it. And it can be something, for example, like a birthday. It can be, for example, you being on the heart transplant list. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of evidence to support that if you had to prove that. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? And then what we do is this is how we get ourselves into trouble. We have a thought about that neutral circumstance. And then that thought is then what triggers a feeling, an emotion, a vibration in our body. And then we tend to take action in action or we tend to react from that place. And that's how we get the results that we do in our life. Wow. Yeah. So we create that uh, with our attitude and in in our minds. Personally, I kind of agree with you because you you can't change those things that are that are factual. Those things that have happened to us are things that we don't often control, and so there's not a lot we can do about those things. But we can, in fact, control you know what we do with those things that happen to us. Absolutely, we can actually regain a sense of control by knowing that we can control those reactions, if you will, to the things that we don't control. Exactly, and that actually brings me to. Another point when it comes to a different strategy for burnout is really just focusing on what you can control. The author Byron Katie, she's a thought leader and a brilliant woman. 
in her book, she actually states that there are three types of business in the world, my business, your business, and God's business. And we always tend to get into trouble when we are either in someone else's business or we're in God's business. <laughs> so it's always best to just stay in your own lane and just focus on what you can control, which is right. really your your mind. And when it comes to when I think about burnout, I think of the three dimensions. The one that sticks out the most for me is the second one, the cynicism because that's really at the heart of burnout. The cynicism, a big part of that, just being really negative and hostile towards others is because we're constantly in judgment mode. This is how we sabotage ourselves and add to our burnout. We're constantly judging ourselves. We don't feel like we're doing a good enough job. We're not showing up for our patients the way we'd like to. And then we get angry at administrators because they're not really giving us the resources that we need. And then we might also be getting mad at the patients and judging them. So a big part of it is just learning how to not judge so much and to catch yourself whenever you're doing that. And in a hospital, especially, it's really important because there can be a lot of divide, for example, between administrators and employees, doctors and nurses, nurses and pharmacists, patients and nurses, etc. Yeah. So when we just learn how to silence our inner judge, we also remove some of that me against you, us against them mentality, and we just work more closely together. Yeah. And I, I have my own ideas on this, but how much do your thoughts ultimately create your experience of the world around you? I mean, I think that my attitude being positive for the most part, wherever that came from, actually puts me in a place where I welcome things that happen to me each day. And so it's almost like my thoughts are creating my own experience. Is that something that you think is real? Absolutely, because it goes back to what I had mentioned with the coaching tool where your thoughts trigger your feelings and it's from those feelings that we take action. So if you're feeling positive feelings, you're probably going to be taking positive actions. And if it's negative feelings, you're probably going to be reacting to them in a negative way. So absolutely. I was going to say, I don't want to give anybody the idea that I, that I don't have days where I'm a little negative or that I don't say things that sometimes can be construed as being negative um, because I do. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like most other people. But at the same time, I do I am I am ready and aware of those things around me that are positive and that can lend to a better day for me uh, that are fulfilling. And I think the distinguishing thing for me between searching for happiness and uh, actually feeling happy is that I'm doing something meaningful with my life. For myself, that's trying to explain things that are difficult to understand to people. That's sort of a strength that I have. And so I use that skill to make people uh, feel a little better. And that feels good. When, when I know I've affected somebody in a positive way, that feels good. For others, it's donating a kidney, uh, you know, and, and something, you know, that seems more extraordinary than than certainly what I do. But um, all of those things are things that I think make you definitely more content with your life and less resentful. Absolutely. I think as human beings, naturally, we are hardwired to focus on the negative. I think that's just how we're built. We're constantly scanning our surroundings, looking for threats. And that was probably useful back in the day for our ancestors. But that's not really the case anymore, but we still definitely do it. So another strategy would be to just start a gratitude journaling practice for someone who hasn't done that yet, because that way, if you were to, for example, just write down every single day, three things that you're looking forward to, and then reflect just before you go to bed on three things that went really well, 
it really can help you shift and just see life through a more positive lens. And another thing you can do that I try to do all the time with our staff is just to, I mean, truthfully, I love our staff. When it comes to the ER, I can't think of a better group of people to work with, which is why I'm really sad to see so many people leave. But I get it. That's life. Some people really need the change and I respect that. But the people who are remaining, I will always just, you know, even if I'm just handing them a drug or helping them titrate a drip, whatever it is that I'm doing, whatever interaction I'm having, I always make sure that I just let them know how much I appreciate them or how I'm so aware of all the sacrifices they've made. And it's just those little things that really make a difference to people. Sometimes I'll just send a mass text message to a group of nurses that I'm really close to, just honestly, just letting them know how much I love them. And they always respond back, you know, in a warm way. So it really is a two-way street where you're just helping cultivate positivity both ways. And and I'll tell you, as a patient, I talked about this with Dr. Kassiri in one of my earlier podcasts. But it's not only a two-way street, but it's a three-way street in the hospital because when, as a patient, you see doctors complimenting the staff, for example, and showing gratitude for the people that are working with those doctors, you feel better as a patient. It's sort of, it's sort of like it rubs off on you when you see other people around you showing gratitude towards each other. So it actually affects patients in a hospital environment, I think, as well. So it's really a pretty phenomenal thing to experience. Thank you for pointing that out. It never even occurred to me, actually, from the patient perspective, (laughs) to be honest. No, you're absolutely right. Because just positivity, gratitude, it really is contagious. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, gratitude's a great thing. I always tell, you know, I I do a little on the side. It's an avocation. It's not a vocation, (laughs) but I help people in their interview training for medical school and writing their essays and such. I do some editing and I always tell them, don't forget to add in the gratitude. You have to talk about those people who helped you along the way to get you where you came from and and where you've come to. So don't forget to do that because that's something that's real important uh, for them and for yourself and for the people who are considering you for the next step, you know, so gratitude's a big one for me. Absolutely. Definitely. So so now you're a life coach. So you have two jobs, basically, if you want to call them jobs, but you have a certainly a passion in, in being a life coach. Where does the line get drawn between coaching versus therapy? I know there's uh, definitely a difference there. And do you believe that people require both in the face of life's challenges? So when I think of therapy, the way I think about it is therapy tends to be, for the most part, more past focused. So if there is any unresolved trauma that you need to re- revisit, things that you just can't get over, therapy is also meant more for people who, you know, they have an issue and they're functioning at a basically a subpar level. And really what they're looking at is how to work their way to just a healthy baseline. When I think of coaching, I think of really a method of working with someone where you meet them where they're at today and you look forward into the future and what needs to happen to get there. So with coaching, it's really more for people who are already high functioning at baseline So there's no issues in terms of impairment or anything like that. And they're just really looking to up level. For me, the reason coaching felt so right was really because of all the mindset work that was involved, because honestly, everything comes back down to the level of thought. And I know 
you had a discussion about this with Dr. Lala in one of your episodes. I love that episode, by the way, where she was saying thoughts become things. They really do. Even the way, like, I think she used the example of saying heart function instead of heart failure mm-hmm. and how patients take that and then think about it and translate it, you know, and that can lead to something positive or negative. It's also true. So for me, a lot of it was the mindset work that was involved and really learning how to identify some of the ways that I get in my own way, just the obstacles that I create for myself unknowingly. And the one thing that coaching really taught me was how to pay attention to all the things that I don't pay attention to, which is all the thoughts in my head on both a conscious and a subconscious level, because that's really what determines your experience of the world. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, real quick, because I know that your coaching definitely does this, but just on this podcast, if you could offer our listeners a suggestion on how to process uncomfortable emotions, uh, maybe a, a just a quick synopsis, something like that, one or two clues to how to deal with that. Sure. I can maybe use an example to help guide us through this, because I think that might be easier. You know, at the end of the day, really, our feelings are what drive our actions, right? So, or our inactions or reactions. So just tapping into the emotion. So if I was to ask myself, what is it that I'm feeling today? Let's say I'm feeling anxious right now as I'm talking to you. I could choose to just, there's three band-aid approaches that most people tend to use, which is to resist it, to react to it, or just to avoid it altogether. Or there's the better option, which is just to allow it. And just going back to what I said in terms of resisting, reacting, and avoiding, the avoidance strategies I'm talking about that most people use are, for example, overdoing something, overeating, overdrinking, spending too much time on Netflix, etc. So obviously none of those work, but the strategy that I would encourage for people to do instead is this method called the now method. Mm -hmm. The first part of it, the N, it stands for naming and just noticing the emotion. So just name it and just call it as it is. This is anxiety, right? right? Just in a neutral way. The O is for opening up to that emotion. So in other words, don't resist it. Don't react to it and don't avoid it. Just open up to it and just let it come in. And then from there, you go to the W, which is to witness the emotion. And the witnessing, what that really involves is doing a head-to-toe scan, where you're really looking for hot spots to see where it's most profound for you. For me, for example, if I'm feeling anxious, I tend to feel tension in my neck or my shoulders. I might breathe a little faster. Each breath might be a bit more shallow but I know it's not going to kill me. So when you do a body scan like that, you also drop the fear and you just let it in and you witness it. And then you just, over time, the more you do this, the more you allow your emotions to just wash through you instead of trying to go around them. I'd like our listeners to be able to reach out to you if they want to uh, have you help them in coaching. And so how can they reach you? What is the best way? Is there a website and or an email for you so that they can get in touch with you? Sure. So my website is fayhasseini.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn, fayhasseini. And I will also actually be... I think probably in the next month or so, launching a podcast, A Dose of Perspective, where it's basically going to be packed with life coaching tools and strategies for people who are really busy, busy professionals. Oh, that's great. I like podcasts. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love your podcast. I'll tell you that. Oh, well, thank you very much. You know, it's, it's something that I've really enjoyed learning how to do. I hope that I'm improving all the time. Uh, it does take some work to get all the ducks in line, if you will, so mm -hmm. that you can have a, a smooth podcast. But at the same time, it's so enjoyable to do. So you're going to like doing it. I'll tell you that. Um, there's no question about that. I, yeah, I wish you luck with all that. And I'll put in the in the podcast notes, we'll put uh, that contact information. We allow it's very easy to remember, mm -hmm. but I'll put it in the notes so that it's clear. And I really appreciate your time today. This has been an honor to have you as a guest on The Heart Guy Presents The Heart of the Matter. And certainly on behalf of myself and our listeners, I thank you so much for all that you do in your hospital and Aww. in Seattle. Uh, I hope to get back there one day soon. Traveling is a big deal and we're not able to do that quite yet. But I'm sure once I emerge from my operation and as you suggested, when the pandemic just calms down a little bit, I'll feel mm -hmm. more comfortable traveling. But uh, thank you so much for your incredible dedication to your work in an effort to help others work through their life's challenges, particularly in the time that we're all living in, and to help us realize our own inner strength. And, and again, thank you for the time with me. I hope we can do this again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Sherman. Oh, great. No, my pleasure. So that is our podcast for today. Please join me next time for another intriguing, informative, and entertaining conversation. You can visit my new podcast website at theheartguyspeaks.com. If you just type that into your browser, it'll, all the episodes will come up. Um, and if you'd like me to host an online presentation for your group or organization, or you want to be a guest on The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter, please email me at theheartguyspeaks at gmail.com. Our podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all you have to do is search The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter and you'll find it. Until next time, this is Dr. Gary Sherman wishing you peace and hope.